Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have a distinct perspective on time. This week you had in the studio Christian Madsberg, who we met about a month ago through a mutual connection. Yeah. And Christian's amazing. When he came into the studio and sat with us and just sort of casually meeting, we had our minds properly blown. And <laughs> after that, I, I got deeply into his book, Sense Making, which I've read and reread now. And I particularly uh, find him interesting because of He's made a life of observing human behavior and drawing insights from that. He had a company that did that. He's written books about it. He um, He's currently writing a screenplay about that in many ways. He is um, the embodiment of uh, slowing down. He, hmm. he really has understood the value of that and the ability to give yourself time to question these sort of underlying assumptions that we that we look at as reality. His latest book that I mentioned, um, Sense Making, which I think everyone should read, sort of describes the tyranny of the algorithm, you know, <laughs> and and um, and how big data comes at a cost. Human judgment has essentially become devalued or is in the process of becoming devalued because of big data. And, and he's someone who's going, stop, wait, let's look at this. Mm. Really? Do we really take this at face value? And, and do we really trust this? And we need more thinking like Christian. Yeah. We need more people who are thinking within the long view. And it's probably a product of his background in philosophy and, and the humanities and the arts that are sort of mixed with how you derive insight from data. That's a voice I can't wait to hear from. So here, here's Christian and Andrew. Today in the studio, I'll be speaking with Christian Madsberg. These days, Christian writes books and screenplays. He teaches human sciences and social theory in New York. He also co-founded Red Associates, which is a strategy consulting firm that takes an interdisciplinary approach to advising big companies through a human science approach to problem solving. Welcome, Christian. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you've spent the last 20 or so years observing human behavior and identifying change and I think right now, a lot of people feel the sense of anxiety and confusion. And I'm curious about how you personally feel about this moment in time. And are you feeling the sense of anxiety and confusion? I've been trying to think about my own emotional state about what's going on. Mm. And the best way I can describe it is directionless panic. It's a little bit like a horse that's stung by a wasp. It's moving all over, but it doesn't really know why. I think the relationship I have to technology, I think climate change, I, I feel it's absolutely necessary to understand this and do something about it, but I have the faintest clue about even where to start. And I think if there's an emotion that defines the times, it's directionless panic. There's a German word for that. Yeah, Scheuer is the German word for it, which may basically mean 
it's a little bit like a child that's been hit by adults that they're afraid of being hit again. That's the feeling that you know I get by observing the world, and that's I think my emotional state right now. And it's not just about politics. No, no, no. Politics is just a residual of it. It's pretty general, and I think all of us feel it. I mean, there might be bubbles that feel quite confident about everything, but but I think most of us feel uneasy, and uh, I certainly am. Yeah. And you're writing a comedy. Right. During this time. <laughs> right, right. You're, you're writing a comedy about, about immigration. Right. Um, tell me a little bit about why you chose immigration as a subject, how you came to trying the endeavor of writing screenplays. Right. So I've kept a notebook for 20 years in order just to sustain sanity being in big corporations or spending time in big corporations. It's not just corporations. It could be academia. It could be anywhere. And the kind of nonsense you have to listen to is soul-crushing. So the way to deal with it, I've had a notebook and basically written down the kind of stuff that um, I heard. And I just observed it carefully in order to yeah, stay sane. And I then took that notebook and I showed it to a, to a comedian. Uh, and he said, are you kidding me? This is, this is amazing. So basically, it's the observation of 20 years of uh, the kind of bullshit that people say and the easy answers people accept and the prepackaged notions that nobody thinks about that you have to uh, sort of live with if you have a thought in your head. So I took that notebook and made it into a story about someone. I had to find a character that was someone that was stuck and had to listen to it. So I, of course, thought about visas. So in America, if you have a H-1B visa, you are re- connected to a company that grants you that visa. Otherwise, you have to get a new visa. So if you are here on an H-1B visa and you want to stay, you just have to take the nonsense. So it's a story about an Indian, bright Indian engineer that comes here and because his kid and his wife likes being in America, he has to be here and he just gets taken through the constant bullshit of of corporate America, the whole TED Talk sort of marketing nonsense that uh, you know one has to do if you yeah. work in a big corporation. So it's just a way of exposing sort of the the things I've heard over time. And some people say it's funny. Um, it's it's not set up punchline. It's just observations, and it's only funny because it's true. Yeah, <laughs> I can't wait to listen to it and to to, to read it and to see it. But I, I think that you know. Using that conceit of the immigrant on an H-1B visa actually relates to everyone because when you're working with a corporation as a vendor, as, a, as an employee, you are in a sense owned and, and corporations definitely use that in a way against you to sort of diminish the self on some level. Did you see a lot of that as you were moving through corporations and you're consulting? Yeah, you got you to... Gotta do what one does in those situations. It's particularly sick in marketing, right? Where people would say things like, you have to surprise and delight your customers. See, that's something that people say a lot. And they're not surprising and they're not delighting at all. And everybody knows so, but they keep on repeating that. Or people go to workshops where nobody works. They write memos that are not thoughtful or at all interesting or even read. And it's just this kind of, tornado of constant new words that you just have to accept. 
And particularly if you have H H one B visa, you're just you know you will be kicked out of the country if you don't accept. Um, so you play along with it, and it crushes your soul. Yeah. Well, you you, you discuss the idea of sort of breaking the spell that's been cast on us, whether it's any corporation or particularly within the Valley, that you're encouraging us to sort of um, be circumspect of these companies. Um, in particular, at the end of Sense Making, your latest book, you talk about Steve Jobs saying this is going to change everything, which is sort of a big trope of the Valley. What do you think about big categorical statements like that? This can change everything. Yeah, well, my question is, everything, really? Will it change our relationship to our kids? Somewhat. But is it really the most important thing in the world? I'm, I'm not so sure. So even the biggest technology innovations of, of Silicon Valley that have been amazing in many ways are not changing everything. And I showed my grandmother my iPhone, and I said, look at this thing, what it can do. It's magical. And she said, really? Is that what you have? I mean, in my lifetime, we made, you know, commercial flight available. We made diapers you can throw out instead of having to wash them. We uh, made modern agriculture so that billions of people can be fed. You know, you know that phone com is based on the back of investments we made in the 60s. So really, is that the biggest thing in history? No, maybe actually there's less innovation now than there was in her time. So this whole thing about this changes everything, I, you know, I used to buy it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really healthy perspective right now. And I think that a lot of people are adopting this realization that maybe this wasn't so good for us. I'm interested in what you think about what occurs when one does break that spell. How do they begin to see the world? When it happens. So sometimes ideologies break down because they just don't explain what they used to explain. So I think th something happened when Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, sat in front of the congressional panel and had to explain what on earth happened to our democracy. And suddenly it was the end of an era of social media making the world better. It's still making the world better in some ways, but it's also something else. Mm. I think in the, in the food industry right now, they're realizing that sugar, sweetness, is delicious, but it's also dangerous. And maybe we ought to interact with both delicious and dangerous. And when you, you know, if you talk to customers of big consumer packaged goods companies, particularly in South America, they are less, are a little bit more concerned about, you know, what it was before. And suddenly there's a crack where you can start thinking a little bit about what's going on. So it happens, and it happens, uh, I think there's an opening right now, particularly around technology, where it might not be possible to explain all human uh, intelligence with algorithms. Uh, data might not capture the entire human soul. And, you know, there's sort of questions like that that we couldn't really ask five years ago. That's why I wrote the book because I was just desperate that people really thought, they really thought that AI was better than human intelligence, which is just ridiculous. So, so and, and, and even if it was, we're still humans. We still need to engage with the intelligence we have. And we still have need to do things in our life. So it was really 
I think sometimes these openings happen where people start challenging the ideology that they or the assumptions that they have. And these openings might provide kind of a restored sense of agency. Because what's happening is we feel powerless. And, and why is that? Why do we feel powerless? Well, have you tried to go up against an ideology? If you say right now, let's say, you go to Silicon Valley and you say, does everything have to be agile? Apparently, everything has to be agile right now. In all corporations, that's all they talk about. What about slow? What about sometimes you need to slow down and think about things? Maybe everything can't be fixed by, you know, two-hour sprints or whatever they call it now. They, they, they don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah, the, so. the idea of speed and slowness, one of the reasons I wanted to have you in here is I had heard you speak once um, and say that every sentence read or written is on trial. Am I getting that right? Mm -hmm. And what's required of, of trial in a way is time. Mm -hmm. And so you read quite slowly, mm -hmm. but you probably draw much more than most people can draw. How have you integrated sort of slowness into your own philosophies in your life and, and, and your approach to work? Mm -hmm. I don't do very many things at the same time. I read. Reading is just essential to be able to think. You know, the, the slogan that you talk about, which is every, every word needs to be on trial for its existence. If you have that as a basic way of looking at the world, you have to scrutinize a whole lot. And that slows you down. Um, and it means you can't handle 16 things in your life. You can only handle a few. Also, it means you have to have longer periods of time to think about the same thing. So I rarely do anything that's less than four hours. So in a day, I can do two things. And that's also a lot. I mean, you think about doing two things is more than it used to be. And all I can handle. I think also I need a lot of time with my own thoughts you spend a lot of time with other people's thoughts and hopefully there are listeners now that spend time with our thoughts. But sometimes you need to be alone with your own thoughts. And how often are you really? I mean, if you look at the subway, if you look at people on airplanes, if you look at times when you really are on your own, everybody's listening to podcasts. And that's lovely and I do it myself. But sometimes you need substantial amounts of time where all you do is just reflect in a, in a cloud of all the thoughts you have in order to sometimes land and at creative things or uh, important insight about what's going on in your life or around you or at work or whatever. I imagine this is one of the reasons you don't use a smartphone. You came in here with a with just a phone and uh, it's a beautiful object to use. How has that shift from a smartphone to this sort of dumb phone affected your life? A whole lot, like much more than I thought. So. It's interesting when you get a simple phone back, and you remember the time when that was the case, um, you have at least a week where you have almost uh, the addiction, really getting rid of the addiction, and you constantly grab for the phone in your pocket. And, you know, and really what you're doing when you grab your phone is checking emails that you could do, you know, four hours from now and, you know, news that we already know. Well, what's in there. And sometimes it's important if, you know, Liverpool Football Club is playing or something like that. But in general, it's not so important. So maybe you can do emails twice a day. And what happened to me is that 
it clarified my head. I could think better and I suddenly started mulling over things that I didn't do before that made me way more effective, like way, way more effective. So I think it's not, I'm not into digital detox or any sort of thing. It just does, doesn't work for me. It's fine mm. if it works for someone else, but for me, it doesn't work to have that sort of intensity of information in my life. Yeah, it's hard to be open in that state. Yeah. Um, we also don't enjoy sort of being in a state of doubt which is something you talk about a bit in your books and in your other writing. What happens when we force ourselves out of that state? How does that shift us? It's not what people want, right? So we set up, at least, the, I mean, the business world in particular, even the academic world, is set up for easy prepackaged answers. So the mobility industry is completely existentially in uh, chaos right now. Will it be one technology or the other? Yet everybody has very quick answers and know everything about it. And staying in the state of doubt and saying, I don't know. I don't know what will happen, but I can try to think about it and I can try to understand the literature on it and I can try to understand what other people thought think about it. And staying in that in that sort of doubtful, humble space longer is not something people want to pay for. You can carve out a space where you can, that I've tried, where you can cover a space where you can get paid for it, but it's not usually the norm. Yeah, The norm is you get paid for quick, easy answers that are not really accepting that you don't know. I mean, you, you have no clue about what's going on in the, with how we cook or how we eat or how, we, what our lo how our love lives are changing because they are. Mm. Uh, because of different kinds of technologies. If you don't step back and stay in a state of doubt, you'll not learn much. But that's not how it's set up right now. It's set up for uh, people already knowing. Mm. When you stepped away from RED, which you had founded 20, at 22, more than 20 years ago, what was that transition like? Did you experience this sense of doubt? Did you, well, what did that feel like? Kind of day one, you're running a huge company. Of course, if you've done something for 20 years, there are lots of people you like. You have a lot of um, sort of muscle memory in terms of clients and client situations and problems and how to deal with hiring the right talent and so on. So lots of muscles that you've created over 20 years that you no longer use, which is a weird kind of situation. I still do commercial work and I'm still involved in some of the red stuff because they have some really juicy things going on. What I miss most is the talent development. What's important is seeing people grow. Yeah, you just think about the people you worked alongside yeah, with. exactly. That's what really matters. Yeah. And what I'm most proud of is seeing some of them just be, just killing it and just be amazing. And, and how you found candidates and what you looked for within candidates I find really interesting the hiring process in a company that's rooted in observing the world and human behavior requires a really certain kind of person yeah what did you look for in the people that you hired and who were the most successful of that group if you think about the two things that I'm interested in which is observation and listening which really is the same thing it's a passive thing right it's not acting, it's not creating, it's none of that. It's just 
looking at the world. So it's a quite introverted and passive thing. And if there's anything that's unfashionable today, it's passive. But you can see that in people when they have that doubt and sort of unease about what's going on and have used the tool of observation to try to figure it out. And after a while, when you have met a lot higher hundreds of people, then you know how to spot it. It's often people that are drifters. They've tried one thing, they did a PhD, then they tried something else, it didn't really work. And they've been hovering over, sort of figuring out how to use that skill of observation to something meaningful. And they couldn't find it in academia because academia is hell. Uh, it's just you know, specialization mania. And business world wants you to accept easy answers. And then they try to find a place where they can, where they can be observers. And they can stay in not knowing a little longer. Uh, and they can get to ask the right questions. So instead of asking the question, um, how do we optimize our retail channel? They can think about what is shopping? Really, what is it? What is it about it? I mean, some of, some of it is necessary. Some of it is delightful. Most of it is not, you know, is not as delightful. What is shopping? Or instead of asking, um, how do we get more customers to our retail bank? They can ask, what's money? Really, what, how is money experienced? And that's not so easy. I mean, you think about it, money is money. But if you think about it, there are different kinds of money. There's money for groceries and there's money for your children's education. And those are vastly different kinds of money. You can add it up in a spreadsheet and it's all dollars and cents, but they're really experientially very different. So people that ask questions like that, that are basically human phenomena rather than business jargon, are the ones I've always been attracted to and looking for and uh, like to hang out with. And must have been the people that felt most lucky, lucky to have found a place to work like that. Just relief. Yeah. Yeah. All the noise goes away. Yeah. Some people, there was one person that said, it's as if the exhaust in the kitchen is turned off. Right? That sort of noise of exhaust in the kitchen, when, the, when, the, when you suck out the air of the kitchen, when you turn that off, there's sort of a relief of something quieting down. That's the way they, I think they feel about it. And as in, in the leadership position in that kind of community, you had to protect them from the forces working against it, which I'm sure were constant. Yeah. Yeah, because they're fragile. And I am too. Uh, but you can learn, and you, I'm sure you've done that too, you can learn how to deal with it and how to play the game. But in the first years, you need to protect them against just the just relentless... You can learn to protect yourself against it, but at least in my own experience, what you do learn in the end is that you're not of it. Right. And if you're not of it, you will never fully understand it and you will be always be an enemy of it. Right. In a way, yeah. even when you're embraced by it. Yeah. Which is why Red as a company and the thing that you've built and the sort of approach to business thinking that you've built that you really go into in sense making is so innovative in a way and so needed by companies, but probably thought of often as a soft kind of cost. Right. Yeah, and it's slow and expensive and 
complicated and different and so on. That's not a there's not a natural demand for complicated and slow. <laughs> but can shift a company profoundly. Absolutely. And you did that several times, which I'll get into it a little li- later. But I did want to talk about your latest book, Sense Making, which we've which we've come up uh, which has come up a couple times already in this conversation. It came out in the spring of 2017. And it sort of describes the tyranny of the algorithm. Uh, You lay out this argument for why our reliance on big data comes at a cost where human judgment is kind of devalued. And I'm curious, since that book came out, so much has occurred in the world. um, What do you think has changed in these two years since the book came out? And do you think that it's sort of proven how right the thoughts were in the book? Have you changed your mind about certain things? What shifted in those two years? Mm. That's a good question. I was uncomfortable with some of the statements made by the technology industry. And that was the beginning of the book. So media companies would say things like, we know more about you than you know about yourself. So Amazon, because it has been tracking all your purchases and all your behaviors and listening in on you, in your home, Amazon knows more about what you will buy next than you do. And there was this story at the time where it was said that the algorithms that Target sits on could predict if someone was pregnant before they knew. And that's not only ridiculous, but also just a vast overstatement of, you know, whether that's the case or not. But I was scared of that thought. I was scared of the thought that they really think that the machines know more about us than we do. And I was just basically looking at my Amazon page. And I've been heavy user of Amazon for since 1995 or something like that. So they should know something about me. So why is it they're still presenting books by the same author that I just bought some other book by? That doesn't seem like completely brilliant. And why is it that most of it is nonsense? And then I looked into it, and it turns out that they're not very effective in terms of predicting uh, anything. And, of course, at the time, it was the aftermath of of the crisis. And it it was quite clear that even in the middle of it, the biggest users of advanced algorithm and all the data in the world couldn't predict what on earth was going on right in front of them. And... If that's the case, if they can't, who, who, who can then? And I'm not saying that data is not important and I'm not saying it's uh, significant. I'm just saying the claims were so dramatic and they were saying, you humans, really, I mean, what are you, what are you for? You're all going to lose your job. We can teach your kids better. We can run your love life way better. You're awful at choosing partners. So we should really do it. And... That made me highly uncomfortable. Yeah, you kind of just want to go, who the fuck do you think you are? Exactly, exactly. You know, which no one was doing. Yeah, I wouldn't have sworn, but yeah, it's pretty much (laughs) the same sentiment. It was just so outside of anything I know from what human beings are and what we're good at. Uh, And it, it just seemed ridiculous to me. There were statements that the robots would take over, you know, everything. And we would just be leisure um, creatures that could be served by these robot overlords. And it just seemed unreasonable and stupid. So that's why I wrote the book, that humans have a skill 
that robots can't do and probably never will. And, you know, if you, there are probably a lot of cognitive scientists and data scientists that would disagree with that right now, uh, but I think so. Uh, and the main argument is that they don't care. The core of human beings is that we care about something. We care about our families. We care about the future. And the care is what robots can't do. They don't give a damn. Uh, and if you don't give a damn, you're not human. And you don't have human intelligence, so you can't make our priorities. You can't predict us. Um, and it turns out again and again and again that the machines can't predict much. Yeah. I mean, Kai-Fu Lee talks about this a lot in terms of, you know, job loss. There will be more human-based jobs, more empathic, um, emotional intelligence-based jobs, um, and artificial intelligence will sort of take care of the things we shouldn't be doing. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I, I think... The Excel software program has been better at math or, you know, numbers my entire life. It's always been better. And that is a machine doing something better than I do, just like so many other machines are better than we do. And that's great. But it isn't human. Can't it's, take your kid to the park. No. And, and if it did, would that be so great? Yeah. I don't think that would be such a great experience for anyone. Well, in the last two years, the one thing that has occurred since your book is that there is this tech lash happening. And it's bigger than Facebook and Cambridge and all that. And we're having this response to the forces of Silicon Valley. Do you think that – how does time play into this? Do you think that, there, that, that it has something to do with speed and the way they've sort of weaponized speed and we're coming to understand that? I think there are two sides to Silicon Valley. It's an impressive generator of new ideas. AI is a huge idea, if you think about it. Yeah. It just happened to be 50% wrong in all kinds of cases, but it's a big idea. Uh, but then they stop, seem to stop thinking, and they just replicate that idea over and over. So they would say, if AI is possible, let's say it is, it can predict anything. So we should use it for predicting human behavior related to earthquakes. Uh, what will happen if we introduce a product? Uh, what would happen if you buy this, would you also buy that? Um, th th they think that it's sort of a, a tool that is omnipotent. So there's a, there's a really thoughtful part of Silicon Valley, but then there is this sort of bullshit amplifier mechanism to it where it gets taken to any part of life. And nobody really thinks about, is that really true? So let's take love, love and courtship. It is true that we're crap at choosing partners. I've certainly made my mistakes in life. I've also been um, incredibly lucky. But is it true that that an algorithm can pick who you should um, be with better than you can? That's the first question. And the second question, if it was the case, would we want that? Would you want sort of algorithmic precision in terms of love and courtship? No, thank you. So they've their assumption is just wrong. So they've taken a technology they're excited about and then they implement it in every single area they can and that's really dangerous and stupid. And it's really an engineering excitement entering the area of social behavior that they don't understand and they don't really care much for. Yeah, I mean, it's we've moved past arranged marriage. Why are we back? Right, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Do you think in certain ways that, that 
Silicon Valley is kind of chipping away at our intellectual life. I mean, how has their massive meteoric success in the last 10 years affected culture, humanity? So first, I, I'm impressed by their generation of ideas. I'm scared of going to a conference about work life and how we arrange our offices and our work environment. And all they talk about is AI. You would imagine there are other aspects to work life and how we arrange our offices and furniture and so on than AI. And then you go to a conference or you talk to people in the philanthropic industry who's trying to solve hunger and, you know, big, heavy topics. And all they talk about is AI is going to fix it all. So I'm really scared about how the ideas are taken over and not scrutinized and no time for doubt and no time for sort of really, is AI going to solve world hunger? Maybe there's something to it, but there's this sort of acceptance of the ideas of Silicon Valley that's really scary. And it's thoughtlessness. And it's if you say something, I mean, I really felt that when the book came out, that they think it's ridiculous. Like, how could someone think that it isn't about agile and AI and big data, whatever they talk about at that time? Uh, they really think that they can create a brain and predict everything we do. <laughs> and to me, you know, I studied philosophy, so I I know that that's not the case from whatever I've learned. I don't know what's real, but I know that's not uh, yeah. that's not true. Yeah, and your studying philosophy also described the context related to time. I mean, Heidegger is can still considered sort of modern philosopher and it's over a hundred years old. You know, so this idea of move fast, break things, this moment, this idea of speed, I don't think is necessarily adopted by someone who's studied long history of philosophy and human right. thought. Right. Do you think that this lack of context that exists in the valley, um, which they they feel they need to innovate, mm-hmm. they feel they need to move forward, mm-hmm. is actually a great detriment to moving forward responsibly? Yeah, I think context is important. And I don't know what the numbers are, but kids are not interested in history anymore. The history departments are emptying out. Where are the historians <laughs> telling us about that that idea of machines that can take over our intelligence has been repeated over and over and over again. It was big in the 50s. It was big in the 60s. It was big again in the 80s. And it's the same discussion, but there are no historians saying, wait a minute, this is an old discussion. And it really is, a discuss- in this case, a discussion between Descartes and Heidegger. Uh, and that's 100 years old or something like that. So the lack of context in Silicon Valley and how much they despise people that studied history or literature or art history. They they really don't like it. And that's scary, I think. There was this great talk I watched with you and your 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 co founder at Google years ago, where you talk about the kitchen. Um and that and then the the future of the kitchen. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Right. I haven't thought about that for a while. The idea is and it's been repeated over and over again since the 50s, is that cooking is tyranny. Cooking is something that we should automate. And here is a machine that can automate cooking for you. Wouldn't it be great? You push a button and a cake 
comes out. And that idea has been repeated again. It's being repeated right now. You know, there are Korean companies building kitchens that can do this. Or they say they can do this. And nobody's scrutinized, like, is cooking really tyranny? Sometimes it is, but it's also a pretty delightful core of human existence. I enjoy it. And it's part of other things, which is feeding your family and nourishment. Uh, you know, just not just the food itself, but making something for someone else. And th that idea that cooking is tyranny has been repeated over and over and failed over and over and over again. And if anybody had a historical view of that idea, they would say, don't do that again. Yeah. I mean, maybe there are parts of it you can help, but don't have that idea the 18th time where it's been... I think it's really indicative of this hubris that happens in forward-thinking technology and innovation that we know better. Right. And we can throw out all of history, which is seems to be kind of the underlying sort of approach to everything right now with yeah. technology is we know better. Yeah. And uh, and this is what you want before you know you want it. Until you don't. Until you don't. Right. So it looks like social media is a great connector of people and has a lot, lot of great things to it. But it's also making our teenage girls miserable and making them compare each other in a way that they haven't done before. They can ruin each other's relationship online. And it means that the rate of suicide ideation and self-harm has doubled since the iPhone came out and since the social media company started. And then maybe the Hoopers isn't so funny anymore. Maybe we should think about that. If you think about 5G that's being rolled out as we speak. It sounds great that you can download Netflix movies 100 times faster, doesn't it? But what does it mean that it extracts 100 times more data than what they do right now? Are we sure we know what that would do to us, our health, our cities, our relationships? Let's think about that for a second before we completely arrogantly go out and say, this is 100% good for humanity. You know, it's good for some things, but it's also we need to manage unintended consequences. And that's what I lack. I lack that just sense of doubt in Silicon Valley once in a while. And, you know, you mentioned Zuckerberg in the congressional hearing. You watched that and it felt like he was describing how to use a microwave to his grandparents. There's also the responsibility of government right. to be educated in terms of the, you know, moments of change. I mean, why isn't... Why isn't there a division of the government, like there may have been in Rome, mm -hmm. that was, you know, considering the moves we're making and how they affect generations ahead? Yeah. You know, it seems like it's also not just the valley, but it's the responsibility of the individual and really the responsibility of government, which is not happening. I agree. They seem to be busy with other things. I've been thinking a lot about the leadership teams in, in Silicon Valley. And one of the things I found, I met a lot of them, and one of the things I found being common is that they have an abstract and statistical view of humans. So they would say things like, overall, we think that our platform increases happiness and social connections. And that might be correct. But it's not a first-person experience. And there's a whole lot of 
things that fall through the crack or gets broken when you move fast without the thought that the first person experience is also important. It's not just the aggregate abstract version of it. It's also just relationships between people and they are very bad at that. They're not very good at understanding that. They would say things like, I've heard them say this, Gen Z seems to be very worried about their future, yet the future's never been better. We've never had, you know, more jobs. We never had a better economy. So they shouldn't be so worried. And correct, the economy is pretty good and uh, lots of things are getting way better. But that doesn't mean they're not experiencing it at a, at a first-person level as being full of doubt and full of sort of existential dread about the future. And that's important too, whether that statistically it shows itself in the statistics or if it's just a subset of the statistics. It's this sort of abstract statistical view at humans that I feel really scared about. And and it's common in Silicon Valley. And it's not just the leadership, this sort of engineering leadership. It's also the design leadership. I mean, for a moment, I'd like to talk about this quote-unquote design thinking that has come into play in the last 10 years and and the issues that come with that and the sort of elevation of the of literally the industrial designer or the graphic designer as a social scientist. Right. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah. I like design. And some of the best things that happen are done by designers. And I'm involved in design in all kinds of ways. Yeah, you sit on the board of Fritz Hansen. You're yeah, 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 on yeah. the board of Big. You yeah. help form that company. I mean... Exactly. But just like everybody else, I think designers have taken on a role as the aggregator of all information and become pretty arrogant. And the process with which they do that is this strange concept of design thinking. Nobody can really explain to me what it is, but it's some idea that designers have a special access that other people might not have to what people want. And why do they know that? Well, they've met a couple of them or they've iterated on something with a few people around them. And, you know, sometimes that's great, but sometimes that is a little bit too light <laughs> if you want to understand people. And it's arrogant to think that you can sit in Palo Alto and know everything about what's going on in, I don't know, Venezuela. Maybe you're different than them. Maybe you don't know. Uh, and I think there's a lot of that sort of young designers in their late 20s or early 30s that seem to know everything. And I always get scared of people that seem to know everything. And design thinking is sort of the sticker for that, but it really is just basic arrogance. And I think the designers have taken that chance. Uh, not all of them. No, of course but, not. But they seem to have left the idea of beauty and aesthetics as the core of design to something about knowing what the user needs. And I like aesthetics. And I like people that strive for beauty. And I don't think it's the answer to everything, but it's certainly a meaningful component of life. So the designers we're talking about here are not the best designers. They're not aesthetically, technically the best, but they're the most arrogant. And it seems to be taking over everywhere. Uh, and I, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it stems from 
design became monetized. Right. You know, and it entered the business world maybe 10 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, when people started to go, well, when companies design nice things, they seem to make a lot of money. So we should elevate the designers to be part of the table, which I think is important. I think design is crucial and design is certainly the organization of kind of existing material or, or, or extracting beauty out of material. But design thinking, I don't really understand. And um, you talk so much in your books and in your, in your lectures about how can one understand what what's really happening unless you actually go and look. Because you can't ask people questions and, and get answers that matter. No. And something that, that concerns me, and I know concerns you, is that this idea of of why go get a degree in philosophy, why get a liberal arts degree, um, is being challenged. You know, mm-hmm. you should just be an engineer, then you'll have a job. Or you should be a designer, then you'll have a job. So, what worries you most about where our education system is now, and how that's been affected by the previous ten years? Well, I worry about if you are sixteen years old and you're really into, or nineteen years old, and you're really into art history, and then because you're scared of not getting a job, you won't study art history. And you will come, become an accountant or computer scientist, even though you don't like it and you're not excited about it. You do it because your parents tell you and you do it because it's somehow safe. I studied philosophy because, I don't know, I just ended up studying philosophy. It wasn't to get a job. And if, you're, if you work and you try to think about how you make yourself available and sort of meaningfully employed, you can study philosophy or art history and be perfectly successful. In fact, the most successful people did that. If you look at the top earners in in North America, they over-index on humanities and liberal arts and not computer science. So it's sort of this idea that education has to be functional. I think education also has to be educational and general and Follow what you want to do. And if you study art history, you can certainly become really successful in other kinds of life. Well, you had the great benefit of growing up in Denmark. Right. It's with, cheating. Well, I mean, uh, it's kind of like growing up in like a Bernie Sanders America or something, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so for a moment, I want to get a little bit into your, your roots. Where were you born? So I was born in, in uh, Denmark. And I grew up on this tiny island south of Sweden. Uh, which has 40,000 inhabitants. And it was tanking financially because the cod fishing collapsed in the 80s. Mm. So I grew up in this sort of depressive environment where maybe dad wasn't didn't have a job anymore, generally. But there's a welfare state that makes it possible, even in that situation, to get a decent education, to have health care. And that means you don't fall through the cracks. So people talk about Denmark as the happiest country in the world. I think it's the least unhappy, you know, because you don't fall through the cracks. It's not that they're so joyful. In fact, they're not, or Danes are not. But it's because there's not the deep misery of just not having a chance to get out of there. And I was lucky that there was a public library that was incredibly well stocked, and that sort of saved me in the middle Mm. of all that. Yeah, because you were a voracious reader as a child. Why was that? How did you find reading? Sometimes people ask me that, and I think there are two things. One is introversion, sort of being quiet and just liking long stretches of quiet time. And two, I had asthma. So if you have asthma, 
you can't run around in the same way that other kids can. So they play football and, you know, other things, which is, of course, what a child would do. But if you can't do that, you do something else. And in my case, it was reading. Um, so it was it was not necessarily just a positive choice that I, it was wonderful. It was also just, you know, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't play soccer as the rest of the. What did you think you were going to be? I thought I would be an academic. I thought I would be a professor. Mm. Uh, I ended up being one, which is kind of strange. Mm. But when I went to university, I hated it because everybody seemed so miserable and unhappy. And, you know, if you think about it, if you're a professor, you get paid for life for doing what you want to do. That sounds pretty good. But so I was just like, why are they so miserable? And that's why I ended up founding a company and doing other things. And you found a company at, at 22. Yeah. Um, which is rare. Is it? Yeah, maybe. Maybe not in Denmark. Here it is. Yeah. I mean, how many, maybe in the Valley it's not. Yeah. And it wasn't just a company. It was kind of a new way of thinking. What was your first project? How did you form the company? All right. Well, it wasn't really thought of as a company. I didn't know what a company was. I didn't know what the business world was like. It, it, I fell into it because I had to make a living. And the first project was for the Copenhagen healthcare authorities. So all the healthcare um, that was going on. So that's elder homes, it's hospitals, it's all of it. And they asked me, why is it that one in five people working in the system call in sick every day? It's a lot. 20% sick leave are problems. And it's more than you would hope because it means that, you know, as a normal worker, every Friday you're out with some illness. And they thought, they didn't really know why. So they said, what, what, what about this kid? Couldn't he take a look at it? So we went observing it and spent time in warts and in, you know, people uh, getting hooked up to dialysis machines and just sitting looking and uh, uh, following patients and following nurses and doctors. And we found that they spent most of their time on m managerial things, on filling out forms and doing all kinds of things that had nothing to do with the reason why they came there. And he said, how about you make an experiment and you roll, you roll back some of the administrative tasks that people have to do and see what happens. And it immediately fell to 7% instead of 20. Why? Because the, ki the people that were there got to do what they wanted to do. So that made me think, well, maybe there is something to this observation thing. Maybe there is something to carefully looking and maybe somebody didn't maybe others didn't think about it and of course anything everything is obvious once you know the answer uh, but it turned out it wasn't obvious and then lego the danish company i was about to ask that what happened when you went to lego right so the there was a new ceo that arrived in the middle of the darkest time of this company that's lost so much money Three hundred thousand a day right systematically for 10 years Unbelievable. Yeah, and it, it, they had they had owners with deep pockets, but it, you know, ten years of losing money like that was a problem, and they were finally in sort of the hands of the banks. And the new CEO was humble enough to ask the question, "Why do kids play?" You would think that a toy company should know why kids play. And they then ask us, you know, could, could you take a look at that? And we started by looking at them and say, "What do you what do you think?" And they said, well, all we know about kids' play is that the brick isn't relevant anymore. It's computer gaming now. And two, kids have ADHD. 
rising levels of ADHD. So again, an ab abstracted version of reality. And that's why, because computer games is more engaging and kids have lower attention span. So that's why we need to design our toys for low attention span. And then we said, well, okay, let's go have a look. And we went out and we looked at kids, in, in this case, mostly boys in Germany and UK and China and US. And we just sat on our knees, just playing with them and, and looking at it. And it turned out that they did, might have clinical diagnosis of ADHD, but they certainly like complexity and they like building things and they enjoyed learning hard things. So this whole story about things need to be easy and quick and fast traction just wasn't the case at all. And for any educational historian, they would say, of course. But for Lego, it was new. And that meant that they could vastly reduce the portfolio of product and they could change their product pipeline to be focused on, you know, more complexity and learning. And suddenly the Walmart came back and Target came back as sort of retail partners. Yeah. And uh, the, the CEO that's still there would say that was an important iconic moment where we understood our assumptions were wrong about children's play. And that story sort of took off and suddenly Adidas wanted to work with us and Samsung and Intel and Coke and, and so on. And you continued to study and observe the underlying notions of, of, of what they were thinking was real, which may not have been in, in line with reality. That's my interest. Yeah. It is on the basis of what are you doing what you're doing? On the basis of what kind of assumption are you thinking that this is a reasonable thing, right? We do a lot of unreasonable things. Right now, sales representatives of pharmaceutical companies are going out every day in their little car and getting kicked out of doctor's offices systematically. Yet we're doing it over and over again. So I'm interested in what's the assumption underneath that that's a reasonable thing to spend your money and time on. Or in the kids' play case, is it really true that what's happening is that the attention span is getting shorter and shorter? Or in the case of Samsung, something as simple as a television, what did you learn? Yeah, so the assumption of, of, of Samsung when I started working with them was that a TV is a piece of electronics. It's sold on pixels, it's sold on little stickers in the bottom of, of the screen, and it should be positioned as, designed as, um, talked about as uh, pieces of electronics. And then we went out and looked at families and see, is that true? Is it true that it really is electronics? And it turned out, no, it's furniture. It works as furniture. It fits into a room. And if you think about that, of course, that's obvious, but that's not what they thought about. So again, we switched the assumption from it's a piece of electronics to it's a piece of furniture. And that's when the TV business of Samsung really took off. Um, and they would also say that it's that insight that we have to design it as, talk about it as uh, furniture. And really, it should disappear. Why is it that large companies fall so out of touch with changes in the real world? I mean, over and over and over again. W what is that? Why? Yeah. If you look at the list of the biggest 100 companies in the 1950s or in the 1980s, not many are left, right? They die. And, it, it, you know, it seems like the companies that we have now are going to be there forever, but 
there's no historical evidence that that's the case. So why do they not connect to reality? And it really is, there's no program inside of most companies to say, let's understand why we think the way we think and whether our assumptions are still healthy or whether they're toxic. And if they're toxic, what do we do about it? And why do they not do that? I don't understand. They're too, it's too agile. It's too fast. It's too, you know, we need to meet the next, you know, third quarter call with investors. And they don't have the time to think like, well, what's really going on here? And then they get into a lot of trouble, enough trouble that they call you. Yes. And then they call you and you're stepping into what you described earlier in the conversation, this sort of directionless panic. What's that like to step into over and over and over? Yeah. You know, you're like uh, Mr. Like the Wolf in uh, Pulp Fiction. You, you like sort of show up in the, in the most panicked moment. Right. I quite enjoy it. There's nothing more healthy for change and understanding than a good crisis. It's just the time where you can change things. If people are just doing really well, you can't convince them of anything. Even the most obvious things you can't convince them of. So I like these kind of moments of unease and, and that's mostly when, I, when they are interested. Mm. And then the move is very simple. It is, they would say, what's our portfolio? They have jargon. So they would say, what's our portfolio, our price points and our product and our, you know, they have all this sort of business language. And then the move is always to say, well, what's the human experience underneath that? So if it is a bank, what is money? Right? How is money changing? Or if it's a dating app, it's not about competing against other dating apps. It's what's happening to courtship. That's the human experience underneath. And then that's where we go study, or I've been studying for my whole life. You talk about these sort of four rules you would use at, at Red. Can you take me through those? I can't remember. Your first rule, I'll, I'll line you <laughs> up, all right? Um, the, the first rule is um, about the underlying assumptions. Mm -hmm. And the second rule, my favorite, is to slow down. Right. This is when your 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 idea about scrutinizing mm -hmm. the sort of underlying assumptions are. Right. And then the third rule was counterexamples, which is the one that I found the most interesting. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the process of that rule and, and, and how you came to that. The counterexamples? Yeah. It's so easy to trick yourself into thinking you know the answer. And it's so easy for a whole organization to think that they know everything. But if you explore what the opposite would be like or what the opposite argument would be like, suddenly it isn't so easy anymore. And it really is a trick from John Stuart Mill. So John Stuart Mill has, he wrote a book called On Liberty that every single uh, listener to this program should pick up as fast as they can, especially chapter two. And it is about when do you have an opinion? What's, when, is someone, when does anyone have an opinion about anything? And he says the bar is you have explored the opposite. If you haven't meaningfully and honestly explored the opposite, you're not allowed to have any opinion. So if you, if you hate a wall to Mexico, you have to explore what it must feel like to want a wall to Mexico. Otherwise, you're not allowed with easy opinions and quick statements. And that is so healthy in an organization or in a, in a situation where everybody seems to know the answer, just passing along easy answers about something. So counterexamples is a way to trick people into thinking, hmm, it might be, there might be other ways of thinking about this. 
Your fourth rule, which I also love, was about protecting the time to knock around ideas. What happens when you actually spend the time to travel through ideas, to not be as linear, to be more thoughtful? It's very strange for people. But sometimes there's some clients that have told me over the years, they've said, what we really buy from you is slow time and forcing us to think about what we're doing because we don't have time for that. I had a client at Coke that I really enjoyed working with and she had her days organized in 15-minute slots. So think about that. Sometimes you could get two with her, so you get two 15-minute slots. How do you how do you think straight if you have that kind of life? And it turns out that all the executives in most of the companies I work with have that kind of crazy life. So unless you have a way of protecting, really scrutinizing whether what you're doing is right or wrong, whether you could think about things in a different way, you're just lost in this sort of endless, you know, quarterly earnings reports and 15-minute slots. And, you know, if you think about that, how stupid is that? Well, we talk a lot on this on this program about time and the difference between kind of natural time and our perception of it. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on those differences? That that idea of like, I can't believe it's already three o'clock. Right, right. So that's a that's a core Heidegger topic. Well, maybe we should take a moment right now because you're probably the best person to talk to about this. Who is Martin Heidegger? All right. When did he live? What did he contribute? Right. And why is he so relevant today? I think he's the biggest philosopher of the 20th century. And he's incredibly, almost tortured, complicated to read, which is why maybe most people have a hard time dealing with him. But he was um, a German philosopher from Schwarzwald, so the Black Forest in southern part of Germany. And he wrote a book. He wrote many books, and they're all very important. But the main one is called Being in Time. And it was out in 1927, 28, that period. And it was just a bestseller at the time, which is crazy that, that a book like that can be bestseller because anybody that deals with it feels, you know, that, that, that that's a heavy book. I mean, that's maybe the most complicated book in the world. And that book basically defines, in my opinion, everything that came out of anything important in philosophy after that has either been challenging it, adding to it, or somehow dealing with his insight. And I'm, it's my thing. I mean, that book is my thing. And I've been reading it over and over and over again. And I teach it. And when it comes to time, the insight is kind of simple. Or maybe as you backtrack. So the main innovation and the main thing he finds in that book is that we have a set of background practices, things that are so much part of ourselves that we never see. So I do things every day that are based on the kind of life I lead and it feels completely natural to me. But if somebody else looked at it, they would say, why are you doing this? So we have a set of practices that come from the culture we're part of. Language is like that. How we drive in the streets is like that. What we eat at night, how we treat our children is all based on what he calls being, the way we are right now in this world. That's a very complicated thing. But he then treats us as time. The way we look at time is the, what defines us as human beings. And time is not so simple. You could think about time as very simple. A second is a second and a, an hour is an hour. And, and uh, 
every day it's three o'clock, pretty much at the same time, adjusted for a little bit. And scientific time is that every second is the same amount and every hour is the same amount. And that's the way you can look at it. And that's sort of the abstract view at time. And that's the way physics works. That's the way the natural sciences work. But he says there's something else, which is human time and or experiential time, which is that even though a second is a second and an hour is an hour, it can be experienced vastly different. So a second can be more than an hour, right? And an hour in your past can change based on where you are now. So your 20s can be completely rethought and feel very differently if something happens in your 30s, right? So time is experiential uh, as well as scientific. So both are the case. And that's why we need natural science to deal with natural things like quarks and atoms and planets and human sciences to deal with the human experience of something. So a river or a mountain is not a river or a mountain unless there are humans experiencing them. And that's why he says the humanities is a different thing altogether than the natural sciences. And trying to use natural science tools to understand the experiential thing is a misunderstanding. So there's scientific time and experiential time. But if you take that to money, what does that mean for other things than time? And that's where I learned from it. You could think about money as money is money, and you can add it up in a spreadsheet, and every dollar is the same as every other dollar. It's not true, though, right? Some money is worth more than others. The first money you made in your first paycheck is very different from the second one experienced. The money you save up for your children's education is very different from what you spend on groceries. So even these things that are sort of quantitatively and abstractly completely banal in a way are not so banal when it comes to human beings. And who can understand that? Well, humans can understand that. And we can see this in each other. Um, and I think you have the experience if you come from a particular background and you go to a different place it feels very strange what people are doing. And you can also see that you are doing things that are maybe very American in a place where those things are maybe not as natural. So one thing could be distance standing, how far away we are from each other. Just banal, just in a room, how far are we from each other? And I find myself with Americans, I always end with my back against the wall because I need more distance than Americans. They need to get closer and I need to get further away. And that sort of dance is not something we think about much, but that's the background practices. It's the things that we feel is most natural and most everyday and most average, really, are the things that define everything about us. And he found that, pointed it out, and it seems to me that sociology, anthropology, um, uh, literature, all these other sciences, other parts of the humanities are completely defined by that idea. Uh, and it really, sense-making, and, and the book before that's called The Moment of Clarity, is trying to hide as well as it can that it's a book about hiding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the next one I'm writing, I'm writing a new one that's be really about the next iteration, which is called Merleau-Ponty, who's a French um, philosopher that talks about the human body and perception. But I'm trying to hide that really that's what it's about. Well, that's why it's so necessary. I mean, I got interested in Heidegger. I read it. But... It's tough to decode Heidegger in the modern world. Mm -hmm. um, something like standing reserve. 
Right. You know, can you describe what he means by that and how it relates to now? Right. So he uh, he wrote a lot, enormous amounts. And he wrote an essay uh, much later in life, I think in the late 50s, no, even earlier, called, the, people talk about this, the technology essay, but it's called The Question Concerning Technology. And he's trying to understand what is it that's natural to us now? What is the background practices that we never question that's just going on around us and the way we think about ourselves? And he calls the state of being right now standing reserve. And the idea is that we are, we are resources. We call it human resources. But we see the world as resources that we can optimize. So a piece of land is something you can set, make condos on and sell. A forest is not mysterious anymore. It's not holy anymore. It's, it's something you can optimize as a timber business or something like that. And food is no longer food. It's carbohydrates and you know molecules, really. So looking at the world as just resources available to be optimized is the way we look at the world right now, but we rarely think about it. And his problem is if we start thinking about each other that way as resources available to be optimized, we have a problem because there's not much soul left in thinking about others as human beings, as available to optimization of resources. Yet that's how we talk about it, right? We talk about human resources in businesses. We talk about FTEs, full-time employees. We talk about headcount, <laughs> you know, all those, that, that's the language of standing reserve. That's the language of technology and looking at each other at, at each other as resources. It's kind of a profound essay that people can try to read. It's a simple idea. It's it's written in the most horrible way, but it's yeah. it's it's a very simple idea, really, that we we have started to look at each other as optimizable resources, which, if you think about it, is very different from before, where we thought about each, at each other as God's creation. It's a different thing to look at each other as God's creation than it is to look about at each other as resources available to be optimized. Well, that's why we need modern thinking like yours to to make sure we don't forget these things and to make sure that we're looking at these things from the lens of the past into the future. And yours, if I may add. Well, thank you for joining us today. This was fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive Podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. Slowdown.tv.